U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says China is uninvestable for foreign businesses. How much truth is there in her words? And what's behind China's economic fog with its crumbling real estate market, stacking state debts and money fleeing the country? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says China is uninvestable. Her comment echoes an earlier one from Biden that China is a ticking time bomb. Experts say China's weakening economy comes down to the draconian COVID-19 lockdowns that swept across China during the pandemic. Closing factories, sending many small businesses toward collapse, and hitting consumer confidence. And on top of that, trade tensions between the U.S. and China are adding fuel to the flame. How far has it gone? And where does the situation leave foreign companies inside China? Let's take a look. Three American consulting firms took a major hit in China this year. The latest one is due diligence firm Mintz. Beijing recently slapped the company with a $1.5 million fine in the name of national security. It's the same company that had its Beijing office raided and closed by Chinese authorities in March, with five staff members detained by police at the time. As a due diligence firm, Mintz investigates the backgrounds of new hires and gathers information for business partners. It has previously said its operations in China are transparent and legal. The issue goes beyond Mintz. From April through May, Chinese police raided two other U.S. consultancies, Cap Vision and Bain & Company. Both of them mainly work with other Western companies inside China. But what's China's concern? These companies' operations would be considered normal in the West. The fine on mints comes as Beijing ramps up control on information sharing. An amended law took effect in China earlier this year, the Anti-Espionage Act. It has sent chills through Westerners living in China, from scholars to business leaders and journalists. What's unnerving a lot of people is that the update broadened the scope of what Beijing considers espionage, but it didn't outline where the boundary is between espionage and normal information collecting for business. The recognition of the so-called espionage acts has also been greatly expanded. For example, the subjects that may be involved, such as foreign organizations, diplomatic organizations, and individuals outside the country, are all included in the scope of the so-called anti-intelligence act. The law greatly expands Beijing's powers, allowing authorities to search suspects' bags, digital devices, raid property, or even block them from leaving the country. It's because whenever the so-called espionage issue is involved, there is no need to follow procedures, no need to conduct public hearings, and there is no way for the outside world to understand such cases. If Beijing thinks that you are an enemy of its regime, it can easily charge you with espionage. Many see China's new anti-espionage law as a handy tool for when the regime decides to clamp down on certain groups. Normal business activities and intelligence gathering by journalists could now be seen as criminal acts. On top of that, China's state security ministry is mobilizing the entire nation to join the country's so-called counter-espionage network. As part of it, citizens are tasked with reporting suspicious activities in exchange for rewards. More American companies may be on the chopping block in China. In China's financial hub Shanghai, regulators summoned three firms in late June, including Starbucks and Shake Shack. Authorities said the summons was due to the companies collecting excessive personal information. With that background, the U.S. State Department is sharing a warning for Americans. Reconsider traveling to China. 
mainly due to risks of detention without cause or being blocked from leaving. Just this May, China sentenced a 78-year-old American citizen to life in prison. China did not give details, but the charge was related to spying. Just across the water, Japan has faced similar issues. 17 Japanese nationals have been detained in China since 2015. Charges are often tied to private discussions between them and Chinese citizens about topics Beijing deems sensitive, like North Korea. Why the similarities between the U.S. and Japan? Because of Japan's democratic system, China treats the country virtually the same as nations in the West. Now we hear from Grant Newsham, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. We spoke about Raimondo's comment earlier this week that U.S. companies see China as uninvestable. Well, she's stating the obvious, and this is something that was obvious probably 10, 20 years ago. Uh, the Chinese government has put up such obstacles to American companies, any company, foreign company, trying to do business in China, uh, that it's very difficult to really do business the way we know it. Uh, consider it uh, in the Chinese markets is basically like a Ponzi scheme run by the mafia. As I said, this was obvious a long time ago. I remember hearing a prominent uh, person in a, a well-known Western financial firm say this about seven or eight years ago. His main point was there's no property rights in China. The corruption is just too much. And the government wants to do you in and replace you with a Chinese company. Ways of doing business in China differ from the norms in the U.S. And that impacts American investment in the country. Well, U.S. investment in China is slowing, but at the same time, it seems as though these people simply will not learn their lessons. Uh, they are still pushing for uh, investment, for staying in the Chinese market. It's this lure of selling one of something to every one of the 1.4 billion Chinese people. As I said, if they haven't figured this out by now, uh, shareholders ought to be bringing lawsuits against uh, the CEOs of these companies that have put them into this uh, dangerous a market where everything is at risk and at the whim of the Chinese Communist Party. Newsham says China's so-called economic miracle isn't what it once was. Now, I would say the U.S.-China relationship hasn't been very good, at least for a long time, certainly since uh, Mr. Trump came in. Uh, once the Americans actually kind of stood up, uh, the relations didn't get very, very uh, didn't get any better. They did get worse. But this all directly affects U.S. business. Uh, U.S. business is in China at the sufferance of the Chinese Communist Party and to provide the necessary foreign exchange, technology, and know-how to allow the Chinese Communist Party to develop its economy and to paper over huge fissures in the Chinese economy, Chinese society. When 500 million Chinese are still living on five bucks a day, uh, the Chinese uh, sort of economic miracle looks a lot less like an economic mir miracle, but it has by and large been funded by Westerners and other foreigners, particularly the Japanese. Newsham said the Chinese Communist Party ultimately seeks to dominate the United States. But is China really strong enough to achieve that goal? Let's circle back to the economic woes in the communist country. First, let's zoom in on the real estate sector. It accounts for a quarter of China's growth and has long been a growth engine for the world's second largest economy. Now the biggest property developers in China are stuck in record level crisis. Country Garden has over 3,000 ongoing projects across China. It claims to be the country's largest real estate player. 
Deep in a debt crisis, the company owes over $150 billion and failed to make interest payments on two loans this month. Another real estate giant, Evergrande, is the world's most indebted property firm. With $340 billion in debt, almost 2% of China's entire GDP, Evergrande has lost more than 99% of its market value over the past three years. The company had to file for bankruptcy protection in New York weeks ago. How much is the real estate sector impacting China's economy as a whole? So there's huge debts coming through on the property market in China, which amounts to massive portions of the economy, 25-30% of the economy, and huge amounts of Chinese personal wealth is tied up in the property sector. So it's a pretty big deal. The crisis has grown so large that it's starting to spill over. Since the sector's debt crisis was revealed in mid-2021, companies accounting for 40 percent of Chinese home sales have defaulted, most of them private property developers. Besides the real estate sector, China's financial challenges are flowing down into local branches of government under the Communist Party. Local-level debt is now estimated at between 13 and 23 trillion dollars. That translates to a maximum of $16,000 per Chinese citizen. The country's strict lockdown policy during the pandemic is largely blamed for the dire situation. Combined with mass virus testing costs and other measures, all Chinese provinces faced an antivirus bill of around $50 billion last year. Left to stare down that debt, should we expect to see Chinese cities filing for bankruptcy anytime soon? Much like Detroit did in the U.S. 10 years ago. Unlikely, because the Chinese Communist Party wouldn't allow it, seeing the formal disclosure of major financial problems as an admission of weakness. Even then, investors seem to be picking up on the teetering business climate. Many are fleeing China and taking their money elsewhere. Foreign direct investment in China, now only one-fifth of what it was last year. China saw $20 billion in direct investment in the first quarter, compared to $100 billion last year. On top of that, a report predicted the country would see the biggest outflow of millionaires globally in 2023, estimating China would lose over 13,000 millionaires. The next highest nations on that list are India and the UK. In June, a Guangdong-based immigration agent, who mainly serves China's wealthy, gave his take. He noted he's seeing a growing number of clients leaving China. The report said last year over 10,000 wealthy people left China, taking almost $50 billion with them. But why are they leaving? The report points to several possibilities. The slowing economy, harsh COVID-19 restrictions in recent years, and Chinese leader Xi Jinping's push for common prosperity. That campaign urges China's rich to share their money to reduce inequality. Coming up, U.S. allies in the Pacific are facing a threat, communist China's increasing influence. What allowed Beijing to get a grip in the region? How are the U.S. and its allies involved? And what can we do about it? More on that with Grant Newsham, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China's influence is rising in the Pacific, right in the backyard of a major U.S. ally, Australia. How dangerous is this, and what should the U.S. and its allies be doing to counter it? 
We spoke to Grant Newsham, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, for his take. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. It seems right now there's a battle for the Pacific unfolding between the U.S. and China. One island nation in particular, Vanuatu, it's quite close to Australia. It's having some internal political conflicts where the current prime minister, who's pro the West, pro the U.S. and Australia, could be ousted by the former prime minister, who's pro Beijing. So what do you make of all of this? Oh, it's a pretty good case study of how, how things work in the Pacific Islands when it comes to uh, Chinese political warfare, Chinese pol uh, influence operations. Uh, Vanuatu is a good place to look. Uh, the Chinese have been looking at it for and sniffing, or not just sniffing around, they've been there for years, uh, doing things like offering infrastructure development. There's a lot of concern about them uh, building a wharf at one of the, the ports in uh, Vanuatu that just happens to be pretty good for handling uh, warships. Uh, also, <clears throat> there's been plans afoot for uh, a big um, housing complex for uh, Chinese who just want to live overseas. Um, and Australia sees this as their responsibility, so they've been dealing with this uh, for a number of years. Uh, but the Chinese influence, as you've mentioned, you've seen it play out now in the, the political world in Vanuatu, and that's always part of the Chinese game book or playbook, uh, is to create uh, a stable of politicians who see China as the better bet. Uh, sometimes they see that as the better bet because they've received a nice uh, envelope of cash. So most recently, what we've seen is, uh, as you mentioned, the, gov the, uh, the leader of Vanuatu uh, signed a defense deal with Australia just recently. And then very shortly after, the opposition, who are very friendly with Beijing, submit a vote of no confidence against him. And to your point on the funding, it seems even the parliament building was built with Chinese funds. And Vanuatu is about $130 million in debt to China. So what kind of leverage does that give the Chinese regime? Oh, immense leverage. Uh, the... Vanuatans could not possibly pay back that amount of money. There was even talk not long ago of them taking out a bigger loan. So this is like getting an, in debt to the mafia. Uh, it's never a good thing to have happen. Uh, but also, you know, China is there on the ground. You know, keep that in mind. You know, we may complain all we want, uh, but they are there. You know, they have done some infrastructure projects. They're there meeting with people. They're there all the time. Uh, can the other side say that? Can the Australians say that? They have more of a presence, but how much of a commercial presence? How much infrastructure work have they done? Uh, and how much of that patient sort of uh, influencing have they done? The Chinese have a huge advantage, of course, because of their use of uh, money uh, to make illegal corrupt payments to subvert a society and to really turn the society on itself. Uh, they have created a pro-China constituency that, that, as long as the money lasts. And there's obviously a lot of Vanuatans who don't want that. And as a result, you've taken, you've taken a society, you have split it, you've caused chaos. It's part of that entropic warfare that the, the Chinese are very happy with if they can't get uh, everything. I should also mention the Chinese have just shown up with some uh, police uh, equipment and some apparently some police advisors also. Uh, so as I said, this is uh, something we have seen in every other Pacific island. Uh, and you know, it's an ongoing battle. It's been going on a long time. We've just not been playing it very well. And given China's 
presence there, whether physically, economically, all these different ways. What does the West need to do then if we want to keep this presence? Well, you've got to, first you have to be there. And you have to be there in enough numbers to actually engage with people at all levels. So you have to make your presence known. And it just can't be one or two people, one or two officials who make the rounds and, and do their best. But one or two people is a lot less than, than you need. And that's a start. You have to also recognize the importance of this place and pay attention to it. And we may need to, we should, in fact, cooperate with our friends, the Japanese, the Koreans, the the Taiwanese, uh, in fact, and then the Australians to combine resources, combine financial resources, commercial resources, commercial know-how to actually get something started. Use the Indians. Uh, they know how to operate in these places. But show that you show that you care. And that starts with, as I said, with being there, doing things, uh, and that will influence people over time. You have got to provide some alternative to what the Chinese have going. Uh, so that would be a, a very useful start. You could put um, military civic action teams down there, uh, help them out with medical care. Uh, that would be a very good start. And Grant, it seems historically these island nations were played a huge role actually when Imperial Japan was there, we lost a lot of our own soldiers, and now it seems Communist China is trying to follow in those footsteps. So what is at stake here for Americans? Well, ultimately, it's one sort of piece of a, an armor uh, that uh, preserves the U.S. military presence, and that's ultimately our political presence, economic pre presence in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, so this is strategic geography, and we have tended not to look at the whole map over the years. Uh, finally, we're waking up, and I think U.S. Indo-PACOM has uh, woken up in particular, realizes the problems, but this is not entirely a military solution. Uh, you do have to have all arms of U.S. national power at work uh, to, you know, to have an effect in, in these areas. It does seem we are seeing some encouraging signs in, say, Palau or in Papua New Guinea, but Grant Newsham, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.